You're listening to Gender, A Wider Lens. I'm Stella O'Malley, a psychotherapist in Ireland. And I'm Sasha Ayad, an adolescent therapist in the United States. Since 2016, my practice has been exclusively dedicated to gender-questioning teens and families impacted by gender dysphoria. I also work with gender-questioning teenagers, and I facilitated support meetings for families and individuals who've been impacted by gender issues. We're curious about the concept of gender and how it's unfolding in the wider culture. Join us as we look at gender through a wider lens. Hi, Sasha. Hi, Stella. How are you this afternoon? Good, good. Looking forward to this. Should be interesting. Yeah. This is kind of our part two. We started talking about detransition. We just, at the last episode, spoke about some patterns we've seen and just how important it is to pay attention to detransition stories. And today we wanted to kind of share some of our reflections on the the papers and surveys that we have about detransition. And there's not a ton of research at this stage, but we do have some really important surveys that can tell us a lot about uh, what questions we need to keep asking and what these experiences have been like, and a couple of really great case studies and papers defining terms and things like that. So we're going to talk about it and kind of um, start with our surveys. And before we do, I just want to point out, because it's it's said so often that there's a 1% regret rate, and it's said so often it would make your head fall off, because... Anybody who's studied this, and uh, not that many people have, would know that this 1% regret rate, it's, it's a kind of a flawed piece of research to pull out. And what it is, is basically it's from a time when there was extremely different medical gatekeeping, as they call it, for people to be transition and so much smaller numbers were transitioning when there was a one percent regret rate not only that they have different kind of criteria for what would somebody be to be a detransitioner and so a well-known study would show and um i think it's from um belgium I'll get the details in a few minutes and I'll put it in the show notes. But it it, it, it kind of gives very strict criteria for detransition. And so you have to have had, for example, genital surgery. Or, and people like Kira Bell wouldn't fit in to that detransition criteria. And so it's like, well, if Kira Bell isn't a detransitioner, who's a detransitioner? And so this yeah. 1%, it's a very, very annoyingly flawed statistic that as soon as somebody says it, I just think, okay, well, I'm with somebody who doesn't know their stuff. They don't know their, they mm. don't know this world if they trot out that that particular stat. Now, having said that, I'm yeah. sure people who are listening are saying, well, what is the stat, Stella? Because it's everybody asks it. And all I generally ask, answer is, well, we do know from Lisa Littman's study, which is 2021, which is probably the most recent for, for any sort of numbers, is that, you know, 76% don't go back to the clinic to tell them that they've detransitioned. And so that's all I know about the numbers yeah. that I, I don't really say very what do you how do you answer if somebody says it well I mean I I also talk about that important finding from Littman's study and um you know I think the fact that we're talking about surgical regret as being the criteria is really different from what we see now because young people today and adult people today are selecting kind of almost like a mix and match version of medical care. So some people just want to be on testosterone to get a bit of a five o'clock shadow. And then that that's treated as though it's not a serious intervention. 
interestingly, at multiple places in the in the process. So sometimes people say, you know, this is actually not that big of a deal. People have bodily autonomy. Autonomy. You can get tattoos. You can get a hair transplant. You can do all these things. And so, what's the big deal? But actually, if you do go down that path, you may really have regrets about it, which is different from surgery surgery regrets. So. I mean, when people say that, I say, actually, we have no idea how many people change their mind. We really yeah. don't know. First of all, as you mentioned, um, a huge number of people who do have regrets don't go back to the clinics. And th- the little information we have about long-term outcomes is that when there is regret, it tends to set settle in around seven to 10 years. So we're still yeah. in the early stages of having kind of a, a huge number of people medically transitioning, so we really don't know. But I'm so glad that you brought that up and clarified it, because that 1% dismissive statistic is used with Slow. such a flippancy um, that it's really troubling. And then they start... I, it's really troubling. And then the people who use that stat start talking about the regret rate of knee surgery and things like that. And it's like, but there is follow ups in everywhere, in every other field. And the loss to follow up, which is a huge flaw in the regret studies, you know what I mean? That they have, oh, there's a 1% regret rate, but 35% are lost to follow up. And it's like, well, hang on a second. If 35% are lost to follow up, we don't know. Yeah. We just don't know. And then you revert to, which we're about to look at, Lisa Lippman's study, where 76% don't go back. 76% of these detransitioners didn't go back. And then you look at the 35% loss to follow up and you think, oh my God, we're in a, we're A, we're in a statistical nightmare that my, my mathematical brain isn't up <laughs> to. But B, we have so much unknown yeah. That it's 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 kind of it's unconscionable to trot out the one percent. It's unconscionable at this yeah. stage to to use that as a yeah, stat. completely, completely. At at worst, people should say we really don't know. It might be low, but we don't know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What else stands out about Littman's study? I mean, we want to point out for our listeners that we interviewed Dr. Littman in I think it was episode fifty-two, and we'll include that in the show notes if you want to go review it. So if you really want an in-depth analysis of this particular study, we recommend listening to that again. Um, but what are what are some other things that feel important to you? I know that seventy-six percent is a really big deal. Um, for me, I suppose I really am quite fond of the stat. It was 100 detransitioners and um, of them, 69% were female and 31% were male. And the fact that 60% detransitioned, as in they reverted to their biological sex because they became more comfortable with their biological sex, that feels like a good news yeah. story to me, that they just kind of made their peace with who they are and said, this is who I am. It, you know, it, that was, to me, good news in its yeah, own way. Yeah, and the part of that statistic that I really harped on last time, and I will again, is it says, my personal definition of female or male changed. And subsequently, right, I became more comfortable. So there's something really important yeah. here about the way language is used under the terms of gender identity theory which seems to create a disconnect between people and their bodies. So that's interesting to me, and that feels completely in line with what I'm seeing, which is that this kind of gender dysphoria 
is a different thing than sex dysphoria, where a person knows the definition of man and woman, is acknowledging that they're not the gender they would like to be or the sex they'd like to be. And that's what creates the disconnect versus somebody who accepts a new definition of terms and that's what makes them dysphoric. That's a big deal to me. Yeah. It's a massive deal and you bring it up and every time you bring it up, it's like I learn it all over again and I go, she's right, she's right. That this is a language-based movement and this was a language-based transition for everybody who has transitioned and detransitioned because they've expanded their meaning mm-hmm. of the word man or woman. This is, they, they had they had a more expanded version of what it is to be a man or a woman in the in the first place they wouldn't have had to go through the transition or detransition, one could argue. They might argue differently. But certainly it rests on this is a language-based cerebral movement that is happening in people's head. And then they're, they're kind of bringing their body into line with their mind. And when their mind changes, they, they kind of bring their, mo- right, their body along right. with it. It's it's extraordinary. Yeah. And I can't wait I can't wait to to flush this out because this theme keeps coming up in a lot of the papers we're going to look at today. You also were pointing out that um uh 50% of the females and 16% of the males in the Lippmann study said I was dissatisfied by the physical results of the transition or felt the change was too much. That's interesting. What 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 about that? What comes to your mind? I don't think, yeah, I think this is really interesting. I think um, there's a lot, even though it all it's all happening in the head, what's happening in the head is very often an idealised version of what will happen when you transition physically. And I think we've all been, you know, prone to that. Oh, I'm going to be gorgeous when I lose weight or whatever, you know, when I get my tan or whatever. And so this is a much more extended, very, very different version of that. But it's like when A happens everything is going yeah. to be different. And then when A happens, it's disappointing. Yeah. And so then they may go to B. Well, when A and B happens, and that's so many detransitioners report on that, that they're not happy with the results. And I think it's not given enough light and we can be a little bit dismissive of it. And I think it's actually key. I, I've noticed, I've spoken to a lot of detransitioners and they talk about their disappointment with the actual the physical reality of transitioning wasn't a very satisfying and therefore it was like, well, why yeah. am I doing all this? Because it's actually not so great. Yeah, I mean, How it's interesting because it? some people say that the change was too much and then others say the change was not enough. So this also kind of goes to show that there's, you know, like with a lot of medical procedures, I don't think it's only in gender medicine, but there's really not a lot of clarity about what the outcomes will be, you know, and we don't know. We, we Doctors, even who have been doing gender medicine for years, they don't know what to help their patients expect. And a lot of young people or a lot of people have fantasized about what their expectations are, just like you said. And those are not true. You know, I know like somebody like Helena who talks about the kind of ROGD teen girl fantasy of what kind of boy she'll become. It's never mm. like some overweight kind of balding old man. Balding. It's like this very thin mm. kind of young boyish looking person. 
Yeah. Juicy. And so maybe for some of those kids, when they start to get too much facial hair and too much acne and their body redistribution of fat is too much, maybe they're the people saying, wow, this is too much. I thought I would just become like a pretty boy, but actually you became quite, quite masculine. And then on the other hand, there are some people who clearly thought that they would be able to transform into the other sex and the change was never enough. So, of course, we don't know how long they were transitioning for or exactly what they had done just in response to this particular question. But there's just a lot of misinformation or maybe unrealistic expectations and, and an inability to, well, it's not the person's fault, but just a, a misinformation, let's put it that way. And and also a, a, an extraordinary, it seems, I remember the phrase rampant individualism, and I, I often think of it in this context because it's this feeling of I can create myself. So I've I've heard people say, I wanted, you know, a beard, but I didn't want chest hair or I certainly didn't want back hair. And so I wasn't happy with that. And it's like, well, wow, <laughs> that that that's that this we have almost led a generation of people to believe that they can create their physicality. If you follow me, and I, I, no wonder that would be very disappointing because, you know, our, our physical selves are, are limited in lots of different ways. Another part, I think, is also understated. One is the kind of physicality of the transition process can be disappointing. And I think when you go through so much and you've idealized it so much, it can be devastating. And I feel people are afraid to talk about it a little bit. They don't talk about that because nobody wants to be called vain. And yet, We've all we are all vain. We all care about how we look, and it can be a very deep experience. Secondly, is that medical complications? Forty nine percent, um, the you know their reasons for detransitioning, among their reasons was mm-hmm. potential medical complications from transitioning, and I think the medical complications that's part of the informed consent model. They they should be very very aware that this is fraught with medical. This is a very inexact science. There's an awful lot of problems. Once you get into surgery and transition, you're really in really difficult territory, I I think. think. That's right. Some other things that stand out is that, you know, people um, identified that they thought that gender dysphoria was the explanation for how they were feeling. And then, of course, afterwards, they came to believe that their, quote, gender dysphoria was really caused by other things or was better explained by other things like trauma or, you know, other mental health conditions. Um, and, you know, people saying that they thought that was the only option, gender, gender transition. Which I meet other therapists who think, oh, no, isn't that the, isn't mm-hmm. that the treatment? Isn't that the treatment for gender dysphoria? And I'm like, God, no. There's lots of different treatments for gender dysphoria. Like the idea of... That the surgical is the only treatment. It feels very regressive. Like the only way to treat a distress in the mind is with, with scalpel or hormones. It feels incredibly counterintuitive for me. Um, I think it's it's kind of very surprising that homophobia or difficulty accepting themselves as lay, lesbian, gay, or bisexual was twenty three percent. Now, to me, that sometimes gets overstated, as if it's. 90 percent is to do with homophobia and it's interesting that like the you know Lidman study 100 detransitioners and 23 percent it was difficulty 
it's there. It's always there. It can be overstated. And I think we we need to make sure that we stay in accuracy and remember that, yeah, it's always an issue. So if it's 23%, it's about a quarter, mm-hmm. which, it, which is an issue, which is a high number, but it's also, it's not the only. I think trauma, and as they said, 55% said they didn't receive an adequate evaluation from a doctor or mental health professional. That's where me and you get very yeah. excited because we think they're not right. receiving adequate mental health pro- uh, attention really there, there's a hypothesis that comes to my mind to explain like the the discrepancy between how this issue is typically framed and what that statistic says and it's possible it's possible that uh the individuals who transitioned because of homophobia or lesbophobia have stayed transitioned and they have not been the ones to detransition. So, you know, these might have been oh. gender non-conforming people who were gay. And maybe they do, in fact, feel like it's easier to live life in that other gender role. Whereas perhaps these people who are detransitioning, maybe more of them were straight, i.e. like opposite sex attracted. And so there might be something about that relationship to sexual orientation that either keep someone in a trans identity longer or something like that. So there are probably ways to to analyze that, but it is it is yeah. it is interesting because I've definitely met a lot of young people who I don't actually think are LG or B who transition and end up detransitioning. I consistently meet them and I thought I I used to Back in the day when I was young and innocent two years ago, <laughs> um, I used to presume the LGRB was going to arrive. And now, I'm, now I don't. I don't think it's necessarily going to arrive. You know what I mean? Issues around their sexuality. However, I do think repressed sexuality is often an yeah. issue, but it's not necessarily orientation. But on your point, um, I remember as Hakeem, who really is very experienced in working with with um, gender issues as such, as opposed to just, you know, OGD or young people. You know, it says here uh, on Lisa Lippman's study that, you know, of of this hundred, thirteen percent of of girls and and three percent of boys were autistic, mm. and that you know, as seemed to make the point, and it was an interesting point that autistic people might be more likely to remain transitioned, they might be more likely to stay within interesting, it, yeah, and yeah. Mm-hmm. Considering we've got things like stats like An- Anastasis Biliadas, Churcher and Churcher Clark study from the Tavistock had 48% of the young people presenting with autism. I don't want to break everybody's heart with numbers here, but, you know, nearly half of the kids presenting had autism. And yet only, as far as I can see, 16% of the detransitioners have autism. So maybe going back to your point, maybe these uh, people who are autistic might be more likely to stay transitioned. Now, before everybody reads into this, this is just us right. speculating, wondering about the figures. It's interesting. We have so little figures, we tend to pour yes, over yes, that's figures right. like this. An extraordinary high number were, were um, already diagnosed with depression. Um, basically, 56% of them had yeah, depression. it's a high number. It's extraordinary. And these are people yeah. with diagnoses. There may be more people with specific kind of traits or psychological experiences that didn't get diagnosed. So 
Um, I Yeah, I think nobody should take this as like the final word on how to analyze or interpret these numbers, but these are interesting and this is kind of some ways we might think about these these stats. Shall we move on? Because we have other studies to, to cover. Yeah. Okay. So next, <laughs> we're going to talk about um, Ellie Vandenbusch. I really hope I'm pronouncing that correctly if you're listening, Ellie. <laughs> um, so she did a survey of 237 uh, people who were both detransitioners and desisters. Well, what Ellie did was a very interesting concept. And, you know, I think it was it was a good idea. And we need to explore this concept a little bit more. She divided into medical detransition, social detransition. And so therefore she saw two different concepts mm-hmm. as such. And she put and about 31% of these 237 people were social detransitioners while about around about in around 70% were medical detransitioners so every time we say a number mm-hmm. that that's the way it broke down it was, it was an interesting thing to do whether they have different needs or not is 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 uh i think a paper in itself to talk about yeah. the different things between we usually you and i sasha tend to talk about desisters or social detransitioners and medical mm-hmm. detransitioners mm-hmm. or detransition. We tend to go in that language. So it's a little bit different in this paper. Yeah. So, I mean, of course, the, the biggest thing that stands out to me is that this survey corroborates what Littman found, which is the biggest um, kind of number here, which is 70% of respondents said that they realized their gender dysphoria was related to other issues. So again, there was a kind of misattribution of what my symptoms mean and that's true in both of these surveys and they had health concerns totally. which was next so that's exactly what Littman found right that was number one and number two in Littman's survey as well and in layman's language that you know 70% said oh, I had other issues that weren't being attended to yeah and I transitioned thinking that was the solution and I detransitioned because I realized I haven't dealt with my real issues my real issues need attention and then there's a whole heft of people with 62% of them with health concerns that when they get into the physical reality of transitioning they're like wow this is this is a really heavy burden on the body there's a huge amount of physical issues that I'm kind of imposing upon myself And then the voice gets into the head saying, well, you could just detransition. You could just bow out of this. Mm -hmm. And I remember speaking to somebody and they they were speaking so eloquently about their dysphoria and it sounded so sad and difficult. And I couldn't help but say, well, why did you detransition? I couldn't get it. It was like they had such deep dysphoria. And they were like, I couldn't take the complications. It was so difficult on my body. I was like, oh, right. Wow, that's really yeah. intense. Yeah. 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 And I mean, I think along a similar line, you know, 50% of these respondents said transition didn't help with my dysphoria. So again, it's like if if people are, let's say, mislabeling some kind of bad feeling as gender dysphoria, and then you start transitioning and maybe you have some health concerns, maybe there are complications, and you still haven't fixed that original, quote, bad feeling then your, quote, gender dysphoria didn't go away. It's it's kind of reminding me of when we interviewed the Dutch researchers, you know, and you pointed out to them that that first patient ended up having regret about, or not regret, sorry, Dang. shame about their genitals. And Steensma, I think, said something like, well, if you have a diabetic patient and you cure their diabetes and then they have sexual problems, does that mean you didn't 
you know, help them. And so, you know, these surveys makes me make me think, you know, in these cases, they didn't even think their dysphoria was fixed. Their dysphoria was not fixed, and so they detransitioned. So it's it's interesting to hear people say, well, you know, if you fix the dysphoria, but you've traded it off for other kind of complications, I don't know. I guess you can't say that for sure, right? We don't know that that first mm. patient would have otherwise had like a happy, healthy marriage. We, we don't know that. But it, no. it's an interesting kind of thing to think about. Just like, is the dysphoria healed or not? What is dysphoria? How are we defining that? Yeah, it's when I've talked to people who don't work in this field, they act as if dysphoria is this kind of almost physical thing that kind of kind of goes over, like you know the way a, a glass going over a statue. Yeah. Like, yep. Dysphoria yep. is upon you, and you will never break out of that rock. And I'm like, wow. And I suppose because I had my own experience as a kid, and. I just think, yeah, yeah, I remember it, but I've I've had lots of experiences and I've watched so many people in, in terrible pain in, 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 in so many different places and I've had extraordinary pain in my own life that I think there's lots of ways to have pain. And just because this is the zeitgeist, this is the one that's spoken about, doesn't give it some sort of special existence that gives all the special rules that people seem to think it it's like this separate condition that is like no other and i no i I don't buy that at all nothing about humanity would tell you that that would be true i'm watching something and i'm telling you now and i'm regretting saying it as i say it out loud because i know people (laughs) are going to give me spoilers but I kind of know what happens i'm watching this show called crime of the century on hbo max and it's about the opioid epidemic and oh, the opioid crisis. Yes. And their start, I, I got sleepy, so I, I didn't get through the whole first episode, but they're starting to get into the section where they talk about how pain was starting to be framed as this horrible thing that people are suffering from and that the medical doctors like kind of ethically have a duty to reduce pain. And that's kind of how they justified using opioids for such a broad variety of medical conditions rather than for example if you have back surgery use it after the surgery they started applying the medication to all kinds of different chronic conditions and and suggesting long-term use so it's kind of the same thing like gender dysphoria as this thing that is um it is a burden and it is difficult, but as though it's insurmountable, it will never go away. It is a violation of human rights that a person experiences this kind of pain and that we must, we ethically must get rid of it as fast as possible, which, I mean, it's a philosophical question and I think it's interesting and I don't know if I have an exact answer, but it is this question about like, is human suffering in all of its bizarre variations is it something we must eradicate as soon as we have the means? Hmm. Yeah, because there's a huge, massive medical industry that says, yeah, let's try. Yeah. Um, and, and it's interesting, like in Ellie's study of, what is it, 237 people, 45% of the participants found alternative ways to deal with their dysphoria, which very much gives the truth to what you and I are saying which is there's many ways into dysphoria, there's many ways out of dysphoria. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I do want to point out that um, uh, 
the the thirty oh, percent of Ellie's are unhappy with the physical changes. Now you have to remember that thirty oh, percent were only social detransitioners, if you follow me. And then you you remember that you know with Lisa Lippmans it was a higher percentage were unhappy with the physical changes. Mm. I think there is a, a a kind of a paper in that. Just the physical changes are a disappointment, and it shaped my entire my whole golden picture of transition was ruined because it didn't it didn't come off. Yeah, you know the, what I thought would happen didn't happen. Yeah, I think that's interesting, and I, I'd like to point out too thirty four percent said their dysphoria resolved itself over time. Which yeah. that that's kind of uh, something I just keep repeating to parents and to families. Like, if you stabilize this young person, lean in with a lot of love, help them address some of their other mental health issues, for many people, dysphoria will resolve. And that was something I was kind of hounded about at the APA by a very well-known psychiatrist there who was kind of pressing me on this issue. We, we gave a talk at the APA um, a couple of weeks ago, and he was trying to say, like, are you saying that children should suffer with gender dysphoria? He kept asking me that. What's your number? What's your, at what point can they transition? I mean, it was an unbelievable exchange. But What's your number? Yeah, like, he, what, he, what? he said, do you believe in counter-transference? And I said, of course I do. And he said, so then you must have a personal opinion about when is an appropriate age to transition. What is that number? And I said, no, I, I don't have a specific number. I believe it's a case-by-case basis. And And the point is, you know, it sounds so cruel to say, but like the the, the truth is if somebody is suffering with anything – I don't believe philosophically that our number one priority should be get rid of the suffering as fast as humanly possible. I believe there's a Mm -hmm. story in the suffering. I believe there's growth to be made. And I believe we should give it some time and think about it. And then there may be an appropriate time to say, no, I really do want to do something specific about this kind of suffering. And that's an adult decision you can make. And you could argue that, you know, avoidance, you know, poisons your future insofar as if you avoid the pain, in a way, are you kicking the can down the road and is further pain on the way because you haven't explored, you know, some conflict that was within you. And then you you avoid it, you swerve and you go wherever. And I'm not talking about dysphoria, I'm just Mm -hmm. talking about pain. You, you avoid mental pain by whatever reason, distraction or alcohol or something like that. And then it comes at you again. And if you keep on avoiding it, it's still coming at you. And so it seems to be part of the human condition that, you know, pain is part of being alive because there are some really, really difficult facts of life that we, we are born of parents who get sick and die. We are, you know, terrible tragedies happen there. There is there's nothing we can do about the fact that life is sometimes really hard. Yeah. And so in a way, we have to equip ourselves with it and be aware that pain is part of the package. Yeah. It's part of our, our our deal for being alive. Yeah, that's right. And this idea that we can we can get out of it, mm-hmm. we can avoid pain. Woo. Yeah. That's, a, that's huge. We hope you're enjoying this episode of our podcast. We work very hard to maintain high quality content for this show. And we're grateful to Rhyme and Genspect for supporting us. RIME, or Rethink Identity Medicine Ethics, is a non-profit organisation dedicated to improving long-term care for gender-variant individuals. Visit rethinkime.org to learn more.
And Genspect is an international alliance of parents and professional groups whose aim is to advocate for parents of gender-questioning children and young people. If you'd like to become a patron, you'll have access to weekly transcripts and special Q&As, and you can join our listener community. Now back to the show. Okay, so um, some some interesting uh, findings, too, in this quick survey, or quickly, is that um, the respondents were asked about how much level of support they felt they had when they were transitioning versus when they were detransitioning. And interestingly, from online forums and social media, they they said it was about the same. They, they gave a yeah. rating of 65%. So I think that means... 65% of respondents felt they had support in both processes, transitioning and detransitioning, which is really online. interesting. Online, online, and social media. Um, family and friends, they said they had more support when detransitioning. And then interestingly... Slightly more. Slightly more. It was 56 so, to 64%. Right. So it's, yeah, yeah, thanks for more. clarifying that. 56% and 64 But then from LGBT organizations... 35% felt supported when they were transitioning and only 8% felt supported when detransitioning. And that's that's a really sad piece of information. Well, you know, an LGBT organization clearly doesn't have a D in it. Yeah. Because only 8% felt supported by yeah. the LGBT. And further, from a trans-specific organization, 17% felt supported while uh, transitioning and only five percent felt supported while detransitioning. So th- there's a real disconnect there. That there's there's LGBT plus organisations who are cheering on a transition and closing the door on the detransition. And I hear this so often with people I've worked with in the detransition. I lost all my friends. I lost the community. I lost the organisation. I-, I lost my supports. Yeah. It's a huge one. It is. It's really huge. And 11% of people responded that they had no support at all while detransitioning. So it's it can be really hard. I mean, that that's thankfully, it's a relatively small number. Um, but it's hard. And you're right. I think there's a major uh, kind of like a double standard kind of going on here. And small, but it's growing. I, I think it's growing at such a ferocious pace. It's it's making my head spin. Like when I first started, I know I've said it a million times, but the number changes every time I say it because <laughs> it's growing so fast. When yeah. I first started, you know, following D-Trans Reddit, it was less than a thousand. Now it's over 32,000. Wow. Is it 34,000? I'll just check now. Yeah, check it's while we're talking. Phenomenal. Yeah, we're in mid-June yeah. right now recording this. And by the I time this gets released, it will be even more. So that will be interesting for our audience just to kind of comment, like, what is the current number of people in D-Trans Reddit when you hear this episode in a few weeks? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's fascinating. It's, it's, it's Well, it's a little bit frightening. It's 34,000 now. Wow. 34,000 mm. on June 17th. Yeah. yeah, and it'll be something more, yeah. significantly more. Now, they're not all they're not all detransitioners, but the numbers are growing so fast and their stories are harrowing that everybody who's interested in this should be keeping an eye on that, on that site because they can see so much. Yeah. Okay, next, right? Yeah, this is a really interesting one. Um you go first. Okay. So there's a researcher, he's a clinical and health psychology researcher in Spain named Pablo Exposito Campos. And he wrote a paper 
uh, which is an attempt to define terms around detransition. And it's a really interesting paper. We're going to link it in the notes, like with everything else we're discussing. And he kind of makes a distinction between two different types of detransition. And he he categorizes detransition as detransition from the medical process. So these are not desisters who perhaps socially transitioned and then stopped transitioning socially. These are people who engaged in a medical process and stopped. And so he says core gender detransitioners are people who not only stop the medical process, but stop identifying as trans altogether. And then the non-core gender detransitioners continue to identify as trans, but they stop the medical process. So he says this could be due to health concerns, a kind of perceived lack of social support or discrimination, or um, finding like, I'm satisfied with the changes that I've made to my body, and now I'm comfortable existing in this kind of uh, appearance. Um, or perhaps people who stop medical transition for fertility or pregnancy reasons or goals. So they might still identify in the same identity, or maybe they change to like a non-binary identity or some other kind of trans identity, but they still identify as trans. And this this underlines the fact that this is a fast-changing landscape, because I've known people who have, let's say, stopped testosterone, female-born and they've stopped testosterone. And year one, they still look very male. Three years later, they actually look significantly more female. And so in, in Pablo's study, he says they're, they're happy because they've had their male changes as such. The, you know what I mean? For example, the female who's, they're happy, they look male, they don't need to take testosterone. And they're worried they might want to have a baby in the future or they, whatever it is, they have health complications and they decide to stop testosterone. Fully secure in their idea that they're going to remain looking male and I've met them saying well that's not what I've noticed I have noticed myself visually a softening of the body over the years and it doesn't happen quickly so year one you might look very male in a couple of years you will look more female and that gets back to something that you've circled on so often which is this kind of feeling it's the bonsai tree creation of the brand of the of the physicality of the person a little bit of testosterone now to mail myself up a bit and then that's the feeling of some of this and it's it's a fascinating approach to the body and to the to to our lot in life i come from a generation where you were told to accept yourself and, um, you know, my, my, my mother's generation was told to accept that this was a valley of tears and, you know, bliss would be when they die. And so this generation is saying, you make of it what you want. And that's where I go back to the rampant individualism. You make, you make yourself, you, you be yourself. But yeah, um, I, I have a very different framework myself for the D-trans and the the so Pablo has core D trans as you give up the trans identity and, you and give the up. medical piece. Yeah, you comp- and I would call that in my mind a pure detransitioner. They are completely detransitioned or a comprehensive detransitioner. They are out. They are completely out, physically and mentally gone from the from the trans world. Then there is, according to Pablo, the non-core. I know everybody's heard you say it a second ago, but I'm going somewhere with this. The non-core D-trans 
They continue to say they're queer or they're LGBT or they're trans, but they stop medication. I've seen like a huge kind of social media YouTube influencer who's like a real darling of of ROGD teenagers. And he stopped. He's a trans guy and he stopped testosterone. I know exactly uh, who you're talking about. Yeah, Miles McKenna. (laughs) Yeah, Mm -hmm. he stopped it. Very much like I'm masculine enough, I'll stop. And I'd love to know the story. Do you know anything about why he did or anything? Or did he say it? Oh, yeah, I've watched those videos many times. (laughs) Well done. You took it for the team. Go on. Okay, so Miles McKenna started transitioning and started to have debilitating anxiety and had never had anxiety before. So Miles went to doctor after doctor after doctor asking about the anxiety And even asked, could this have anything to do with the testosterone? And doctors assured him, by the way, Miles McKenna is female to male, right? So I'm transitioning to male. Assured him that it was not the testosterone. And then one doctor said, you know what? It might be. Let's take you off and see what happens. And the anxiety went away. So um, Miles McKenna didn't really share this information with his audience for a while, which he has, of course, the right to do. It's not anybody's business. But it was interesting because he had stopped testosterone for quite some time. And some of the changes, of course, didn't really um, change yet. But as you said, who knows what will happen in multiple years? I think this was like a year or two ago. I'm having a hard time mm. keeping track. But yeah, Me that's too. that's a really great example. And actually, I know that Miles McKenna being honest about that experience gave a lot of young people the freedom to remain identified as trans if they're comfortable that way and make more thoughtful decisions about their health. Because I think sometimes inadvertently some of the debates within this world make people think that in order to identify as a different gender, I have to transition medically or I have to go all the way medically And even though I don't really believe in gender identity theory, I was really glad to see that young people who still have that belief system or still identify with those queer labels also have permission not to medicalize or to worry about their health or to be more cautious Mm. about the, the consequences. I think if we are going to advance our thought process around this, we need to advance our our kind of categories and our frameworks of what's going on. And so what Pablo did, Pablo Exposito Campos did, was really interesting because he started the conversation with core D-trans mm-hmm. and then non-core, which is Miles McKenna, as in I'm stopping the physical, but I'm still trans. And while you say he had every right to, I'm glad he ultimately found the generosity of soul to share the fact that this was causing him a huge amount of anxiety and so he stopped because I think it's helped a huge amount of people. So I'm glad he did the right thing in the end. I have a different, now that I'm working in the Beyond Transition programme in Genspect, I've kind of a different or or another layer of my understanding of detransitioner. And I see it as a, there's a detransition of the mind and there's a detransition of the body. And when you're a detransition of the mind, You've given up on gender identity theory. You've given up on the idea that you can be a different person or a woman or a man or whatever. And you realize that you you are you have your body, you are your body, you're of your body. And so you've that's detransition of the mind. Now some people go further and they also detransition the body. 
But some people, like, and I'm thinking of, let's say, Scott Nugent would be an obvious one. Or Corinna Cohn, who wrote that beautiful essay in the Washington Post, where in a way they say that I've given up, I, I've given up on this whole identity ideology. That's not for me anymore. I've detransitioned in the mind. I'm, I'm giving them those words that like they yes, didn't say yes. it, but I think they have. Um, but my body is my body. And frankly, you know, whatever happens with my body, I'm not going to bother to revert. I'm not going to bother trying to kind of rechange back again. I'm just going to be who I am. I'm, I'm not going to attend to my body and I'm not going to detransition my body. And there can be sometimes an awful lot of pressure. Um, mm-hmm. I've seen a huge amount of pressure, for example, on Scott Nugent, as in how can you say all this and not detransition? You have to detransition. And he makes very, very good kind of defense of saying, well, I can't, I, I won't get away with it, basically, and I'll just cause heartache to everybody and I'll just cause further disorientation to society if I try to kind mm-hmm. of detransition. So it's somebody who detransitions of the body and the mind, they do both. They give up the gender identity ideology and they also detransition their body and they start presenting as their biological sex. But it's, I hope it's, have I really complicated things? No, I think that's brilliant because that also, I mean, people that I'm thinking about, which I don't know if they would see themselves this way, but they might like somebody like Mars, you know, trans bra Mars. Mars is comfortable in the transition and feels more comfortable having masculinized characteristics, but doesn't buy into the gender identity theory at all. And it's yeah, totally so he's rejects detran- it, right? Detrans of the mind. So it's Helena, like he's detrans of yeah. the mind, but still trans yeah. of the body. So yeah. this is an interesting additional categorization. And I wonder yes. about the Kimber- Aaron Kimberly and Aaron Terrell. Like, yes. they also don't buy into gender identity theory at all. But they seem to feel much more comfortable existing in the world as trans men at this stage, maybe. So- totally. So we brought this in with the beyond transition because we're really expanding our understanding of what happens post-transition. And I thought we need words for this. We need words for, let's say, Aaron Kimberly, Aaron Tyrrell, Mars, Scott. You know, I think, and now I'm not mad about categories, but I keep on falling back into them because we humans need them to categorize the experience. But I wonder, is it, is it, accurate or fair for us to place the word detransition on those individuals because they the word detransition no. has his as historically yeah. as far as back as we can go in the last 10 years or something <laughs> just meant like someone who stops medical transition mm-hmm. so yeah. there 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 may not be a place for us at, at this point to apply that label but i think there's something to just conceptually detransition of the mind meaning like letting go of gender identity theory and this is a bit clumsy but maybe there's going to be an evolution here and maybe people who feel that way about their experience and their perception of you know all of this will come up with a a way to describe it and corinna said you know i'm a disenchanted Mm. trans person i think is what she said and then there is detransition of the mind and body and that's helena Sinead Watson, these yeah, are, they've right. completely left behind. They've cured a bell, they've moved back yeah. into presenting as their biological sex and uh, they've given up all the ideology. And that's going back to where uh, Pablo came up with the core that's right. D-trans. Yeah. I think that's great. So I think there really needs, people need to, I'd love people when they listen, that they comment on our yeah. on our YouTube or they comment on our Twitter saying, this is the, these are the words you need. Yeah, give Come us better us. words. Yeah. But I, I yeah. really like the detransition of the, the body and the mind for those so core detransitioners. That makes a lot of sense to me. 
Me too. Okay. So now we're going to shift gears a little bit and talk about a few case studies. Now, we acknowledge we might have missed some case studies, but we're going to cover a couple of important ones that that we have top top of our mind. And if there's anything that we've missed that you can include, please keep us posted. Let us know. So the first one is a case study by our our colleague and friend, Lisa Marciano, about, uh, of course, this is an anonymous uh, name, it's, it's a pseudonym, uh, a young person named Maya, a young woman named Maya. And this person's story is really interesting because there's so much uh, kind of difficulty from childhood and trauma that was not ever processed or recognized, even though this young person had gone through the affirmative gender therapy process. And when she was detransitioning, you know, working with Lisa, a lot of these things became clear in hindsight. Yeah. With with Maya, you read it, and like Lisa's paper is so beautifully written, but she, there's two big things that for me that come out, which is attachment theory and the flaws in the affirmative treatment. Mm-hmm. And if if you want to know about attachment theory, you know, you can see when Maya was nine, her aunt died wasn't allowed to attend the funeral as the parents felt it was better that she she didn't dwell at the loss and she should move on. Then she had a succession of au pairs and babysitters. Life went on as usual. But something about that, I think, the well, I don't know her, but like it feels to me reading it, the attachment void happened. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, you know, they often talk in addiction about the whole and the soul, which I often think is another way of saying the attachment void. Yeah. And so she tried to fill it. And yeah. maybe it was her dance squad and then it was transitioned. She was filling a hole in her soul. Yeah. Of that was left when when the aunt died. There was a hole there, and it was like something fill it. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's a very sad paper. Yeah. I think it's very. You know what I mean? Beautiful in its way as yeah. well. And then the extraordinary flaws of you cannot look at this and think affirmative treatment is one size fits all. It doesn't suit many people and this is a good one to show that it doesn't suit yeah and and what lisa says in her paper you know towards the end she says in maya's case i understand that the affirmative treatment addressed the superficial distress only and seemed to leave little room to explore other factors it was only after maya decided to detransition that the psychological work in these important areas could occur so you know, it's like the fantasy that gender transition encompasses all of these issues that has to break in order for the person to to come face to face with what was really going on the whole time. Yeah, yeah, it's a, it's 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 a really good analysis of how you know with the body, you know, on top of the attachment void, then there was the um, the, the 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 bad, frankly, the bad therapy with the affirmative treatment and there was an, an underlying issue around body issues mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. eating and and thinness yeah that was just that was just thrown into the mix and as it so often is it's so often yeah. is there's an issue around the body that needs to be kind of um addressed i suppose yeah she says something like the, the disordered eating um kind of relegated the intolerable affect to the body. So Lisa thinks that like Maya had all of this emotional dysregulation stuff going on and she placed all of that in the body. And what it reminds me of is something that Joe Burgo talked about a few weeks ago when he had, we had him on about his first patient 
how she located all of her shame in her female anatomy. So there's a way that we can take a kind of emotional distress or emotional chaos and place it in a concrete place, which is my breasts, my hips, or whatever. Um, and that obviously looks similar in an eating disorder as it would in gender dysphoria. So I thought that was just really interesting, the way the body be- takes the blame for all of this emotional turmoil. Yeah, which, you know, that is classic. You know, the body keeps the score, and uh, there's so many psychology books and writing around it yeah and yet again with the exceptionalism of gender it's just collectively ignored and disregarded as if as if we haven't all learned all about that yeah that's right and another another paper we looked at is by roberto d'angelo and it's called the man i'm trying to be is not me and this is really a fascinating and powerful and sad exploration of how that shame and guilt can be placed into the body. Do you want to talk a bit about that one? Yeah, this is about a person who was born female and transed to male. So um, Josh is his name in the paper. And what happened was, you know, this was the thing that you and I mentioned quite a lot in, in a few minutes ago, which was Transitioning didn't liberate Josh to get on with his life as he had hoped. In fact, he'd become completely paralyzed, socially isolated and unable to work post post transition. So the medical transition in this, it didn't live up to the mm-hmm. promise. The promised land was not great. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so many myths for thousands of years have been about people putting all their eggs in one basket, going to the promised land. You know what I mean? There, There is an awful, almost every single country has myths around that. Yeah. And this is our, this is our great myth. And um, he had an idealized fantasy of what medicine could achieve. And it didn't, you know what I mean? So this kind of omnipotence of medical science, which Roberto speaks about in this paper, it didn't, it didn't work, all, mm-hmm. work you know. Mm-hmm. He, and he had a nippleless chest and, you know, he, he really... He speaks, Roberto D'Angelo speaks very, or writes very, very sadly about his counter-transference. He kind of had a very extreme reaction mm-hmm. to what had happened to his patient. There's a sadness. Yeah. And it's a really deep kind of analysis of it. But ultimately, Josh, do you want to take up, he no longer believes he is a man. Yeah. So towards the end of their work together, you know, Roberto says... He no longer believes he's a man and has kind of decided to eschew all the gender categories, which is kind of like what you talked about with that concept of detransition of the mind. So he's no longer plagued by fears that he's not masculine enough or needs to pass. And he says the future is unknown in terms of what he will decide. And I, I thought that was really interesting because towards the end, um, you know, Josh is describing that the work with Roberto was very valuable and that he learned so much about what the dysphoria meant and that he realized that what he thought it was was actually a very narrow, right? And he says something like, um, while medical and surgical transitions seemed life-saving at the time, it also drained Josh's pain of any meaning, history, and significance, simply encasing it in the body. At the same time, it's unclear whether this kind of exploration would have been possible, let alone desired pre-transition, or whether it was something that Josh could only engage in after the fact. And I really wanted to spend a few minutes on this because it's so 
we are so prone to making post hoc determinations of what would have been helpful. And mm -hmm. in this gender world, I think people on both sides of the debate can be guilty of this. So whether it's the Dutch who say, trans women told us, I would have been happier had I transitioned as a child, or those of us on, quote, this side of the debate who think that if everybody was offered gender exploratory therapy, then everybody would find the true underlying, you know, root of their distress and find healthier solutions and, and be better off. And I think the truth is, as you often, you know, describe so well, when somebody is obsessed and fixated on one solution, there are some people who cannot be dissuaded from that and will go on and do it. And sometimes after the fact, we'll have that kind of wake up moment. And then of course, in, in this person, Josh's case, was so lucky to have such a thoughtful therapist like Roberto to actually kind of excavate these real wounds. But I don't know if every single person is able to do that uh, just because the therapy is available. Now, that being said, we should make that therapy available to everyone. But mm -hmm. I, I want people listening to be conscious of how some people are like, going on a bullet train a million miles a minute, and they're not stopping for anything, no matter how good their therapist is. And, and therapy doesn't cure all wounds. And if it did, life would be very simple. We'd all go to therapy. But sadly, it, it doesn't. And it reminds me of what Debbie Hayton said um, when Debbie w spoke with us. She said, I, I wasn't, I couldn't, I couldn't analyze anything until post-surgery, post-surgery. Until then, basically, she wasn't able to kind of contemplate reflection. And then after surgery, she started, she could breathe and actually speak about what had happened. And I think I've seen that in other people who have been through extraordinary, you know, mental stretches of the mind. And they've said, I, I kind of had to go through it. No, Nobody would have talked me out of it I, I had to go through there I, I've just been sharing some clips of my film from 2018 and in it um, we speak with um, Kale who's a detransition woman and there's a very sad moment in the film where she says I, I don't regret it I, I had to go through it I you know I had no other choice I was stuck on a train and I couldn't get off and there was there was no there was no other option than to go through this pain and I don't know, none of us have answers, but a few people are definitely saying this. Yeah, yeah. I, I've definitely um, worked with people who, for maybe years, we've been kind of trying to explore certain concepts and there's been such a great resistance. And then when someone begins a medical process, it's almost like they then have permission to think about these things. And it's fascinating and I don't have a great solution to that. Um but I think everybody has to kind of go through what they're going to go through. Now, I still think we should put way more safeguards in place. And I think yeah. we need to create many more opportunities for people to explore. But, you know, you've talked about kind of um, informational campaigns. Talk a little bit about that, because oh, yeah. I think that's actually a very important way that we can avoid becoming extreme gatekeepers, but also 
um, helping people avoid medical interventions that can harm them? For me, the only, having thought about it really quite extensively, the only way I can see forward is I don't think medical gatekeeping is the way forward because people will just start going to other countries. They'll start lying to the medical gatekeepers. They'll, it'll become a kind of a power struggle and an authority and anti-authority kind of thing. And I think a, a public awareness campaign about what is medical transition and what are the true and accurate kind of accounts of what it brings, what is disappointing, what it, what, what, it, what it might solve, what it mightn't solve. And if there was an accurate knowledge just out in society, like there is, I think they've kind of done it with antidepressants. People, when they first found antidepressants, they were a cure-all, just get your antidepressants, it's going to be great. Now people have a much more complex, nuanced understanding of, mm, yeah, now it comes with issues and, you know, the, 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 they sometimes work very well, but, you know, you do have to have your, your kind of, you have to be engaged mm-hmm. in the process. And I think we need to do an equal public awareness campaign. I think it's the only way that, so that teenagers, when they bring up medical transition, the average mother or father knows what it's about, knows what's going on. And the average teenager knows that people get caught up in these things and they don't deliver the promises that they that they sometimes set about. You know, the promises that they gave don't get delivered on. Yeah. And and yeah. along with that, I'd really love to see more nuance in the kind of like true trans versus not true trans argument. First of all, because maybe gender dysphoria can exist on a spectrum or something, or maybe trans identification can exist on a spectrum that like it's caused by different things or it has appeal for different reasons. And secondly, the true trans versus not true trans argument is really dismissive to people who have transitioned and are kind of like we've talked about disillusioned, right? Does it mean that they weren't truly trans? You know, Mm -hmm. I mean, I thought true trans people are 100% cured and healed by transition. Like, so I'd love to see just more granularity and nuance brought into this topic because it's, of course, not, it's not just like you fit the correct peg in the hole and everything is perfectly fit. It's not how it works. Yeah, not, nothing nothing in life is as, as simple as that. Yeah. So we're, we're coming towards the end and, you know, there are some great other papers. Bob Withers' paper... Certainly the first paper I ever read about yes, D-trans was same. The Seventh Penis. And that's a sad account of, of, of a person, mostly uh, w- one person he works with who um, had genital surgery. And it's a long, long kind of deep therapeutic relationship. It's real depth work mm-hmm. at its best. And then there's Kirsty and Whistle. Uh, gave a great paper as well. She's written a great paper. And uh, that's kind of an analysis of really the state of play around who's saying what, Lemma, what's, you know, what's Zucker saying. And she's she's asking some very good questions, talking about, let's say, for example, one person, uh, Minis and Minis, say that Samuel's uh, mastectomy relieved his dysphoria. And isn't that great? And she's pointing out it's three weeks after his surgery. Yeah. And, you know, the short term nature of that sort of, you can't comment to anybody three weeks after a surgery. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a farcical time. Yeah. So it's very important when we all look at kind of regret. Another kind of flaw in the regret studies was a year after transition, they were all thrilled with themselves. And it's like, okay, what the hell do we care what they were? You know, you have to do a bit of long term. Yeah, or, you know what sure. I mean? Yeah. 
And 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 uh, Kirsty Entwistle's paper was written in May of 2020, and so it's really a, a lot of commentary about what was going on at the time, and it's about um, the debate, you know, the debate within this this world. So um, we will link all of these in the notes. And as we said, if there's anything that we've missed, feel free to remind us and share those links with us and we will add them. Um, and I, I hope that this was interesting and, and helpful to people. I know it can be overwhelming sometimes as this landscape changes so, so quickly. So we just wanted to give a little bit of time to the bit of research we do have. Mm-hmm. And don't let anybody... Uh, um say that 1% stat without challenging it, please. Yes. (laughs) Thanks for joining us this week on Gender, A Wider Lens. This podcast is sponsored by Rhyme and Genspect, and listener support means a lot to us. The best way to help is to subscribe and review us on iTunes. Follow us on social media, and if you'd like to become a patron, you'll have access to weekly transcripts of the show, special Q&As, and you can join our listener community. Just go to our link tree. That's linktr.ee slash widerlenspod. Our discussions are for educational purposes only and are not intended as a substitute for mental health services.